Let's turn back in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis 41. Again, the, the outline handout from the back table will be helpful for you to follow this afternoon. As far as space on the page, we have a lot less to cover this afternoon. That is good news, though um, it might take us a little while longer than you think. We'll see. But not terribly long. This, of course, is a unique place to be picking up because we've already gone all the way through the sermon text, Genesis 41, uh, and we are jumping back into application from that text. So let me remind you as we jump back in of the big idea of the text we covered in the morning, Genesis 41. God exalted Joseph, and of course this is after Joseph's suffering, God exalted Joseph as the nation's savior from famine. Not just the land of Egypt, but all lands, it said, came to Egypt to Joseph to buy bread, to buy grain. He was the nation's savior from famine, and God exalted him to that position after all his trials that we had seen in previous weeks. By way of application, this text contains hints of Christ's power, as we saw this morning already, but also hope for Christ's people in a different sense. Joseph is not only a larger-than-life sort of figure, a sovereign savior who foreshadows Christ. He's also a real person, a real sinner saved by grace, whose personal story is that of a suffering saint whom God rescued and exalted. So we should look at it from that angle, too, to do it justice. But here we have to be very careful. As we acknowledged this morning, Joseph's exaltation to be ruler over Egypt was the means to a greater end in God's purposes. The fact that he became so powerful in Egypt was not itself the point. It was, it was the means to a, an even greater end in God's purposes. It was not the ultimate payoff for his faith. If it were, it might be grounds for a health and wealth message of earthly prosperity. Like... If you weather trials with the right kind of faith, you will be exalted by God to enjoy the good life here on earth, your best life now. Give my best Osteen smile. Not very good. (coughs) See, that's what it does to me. Um, So we could say, just just weather your trials with the right kind of faith and you'll end up with, with the life of the rich and powerful, Right? certainly see someone doing that with a text like this. Or, perhaps a less charismatic, uh, wild charismatic, less megachurch version of that, something more straight-laced, traditional conservative, might be this. Be faithful to God, meticulously obey biblical principles, and you will eventually get to a place where you avoid personal tragedy, and you become a successful Christian that others will envy. If you say no to the world's temptations, God will give you the wife and kids you always wanted. If you follow all the right kinds of uh, standards of conduct and child rearing, your kids will turn out right. If you say no to risky financial behavior, 
stay out of debt. If you give your tithes and offerings, then you'll get to a place of financial peace and plenty. If you're wise and positive like Joseph, you'll eventually be recognized by the important people and get the good job. Handle obscurity well and you'll eventually get public acclaim. And so on and so on. And boy, we could get a crowd with that sort of message, couldn't we? People do. Depending on the wrapping paper we use, it might be a trendy megachurch crowd, or a signs and wonders crowd, or a straight-laced Pharisee crowd. (laughs) But that message gets a crowd, and it's even more attractive because it has traces of truth, right? Traces of truth. Read the book of Proverbs, and you'll find out that often in God's world, good behavior brings good results in this life. Likewise, if you insist on bashing your head against the Creator's moral law, it's going to hurt. Duh. That much is true. So there's traces of truth, true principles, that can be taken to extremes and unbiblical promises. Things of that nature. But while Joseph's story doesn't make promises to God's people of exact outcomes in this life, as if the right spiritual coins and the right spiritual buttons will get the product you want from God's dispensing machine of earthly blessings. (laughs) Well, that's not true. Still, Joseph functions as an example to suffering saints. His story gives hope. Uh, Let me find my notes here. Uh, That's right. His story gives hope to Christ's people because Joseph's God is our God. And because we belong to the Savior whom Joseph foreshadowed. Those are two reasons. It gives us hope. So let's explore this hope uh, from two different angles. So hope for Christ's people, there in your notes. Let's start with Joseph's example as God's man in Egypt here. And, and what, that, what we're seeing about that in chapter 41. From that we see, number one, that world powers are at God's disposal for the good of his people. World powers are at God's disposal for the good of his people. Does it bother you that the power brokers of the world care nothing for the true and living God? Does that unsettle you, that is? That should bother you in some sense, but does it unsettle you? Does it unnerve you? Does it bother you in that sense that, at best, the powers that be function without regard for or notice of God's elect people? The church, that is. How can we ever accomplish anything great in this world for Christ, you might feel, if we are like little ants that the the, the high and mighty can smash with their boots without even noticing they're stepping on us, you know? We're, we're not many of us mighty or powerful or noble by the world's standards. What hope do we have in this world to accomplish God's mission uh, when we aren't powerful? <laughs> well, let's be reminded by Joseph's story that God can do whatever he wants with the great ones of the earth. That's pretty plain in, in this example in Joseph's life. We are helpless, but not our God. 
The world powers are all at his disposal. It's no hard thing for God to make fools of the royal court and of the magicians and the wise men of this world. Or you could say it in the phrase of our day, the wizards of smart. (laughs) It's no hard thing for God to back Pharaoh into a corner where he's ready to listen to a Hebrew slave, a prisoner in the royal dungeon. He has no other recourse but to listen to this man. That's not hard for God. It's no hard thing for God to entirely reverse all your earthly troubles tomorrow. He can launch you from prison to the palace so fast it'll make your head spin. And God will do that if that's what's truly best. You don't believe that? Well, if you don't, what kind of a God are you trusting anyway? (laughs) I I believe in a God who you, you might say when you examine yourself, well, maybe I believe in a God who can accomplish mundane things for me. But not world-shaking things. Well, then your God's pretty small. He's not the God of Joseph. And by the way, the Bible itself reuses parts of Joseph's story to make this point. God's people may be lowly and helpless, but God is in full control of their world. Many details of Joseph's service to Pharaoh, the big details, the small details, they're mirrored in Daniel's later service to the kings of Babylon. we've It's been a while. We've preached a sermon series all the way through the book of Daniel. Uh, some of that was pretty hard material, but we did it. Um, but you saw that especially early in, <clears throat> in the book of Daniel. And more than that, the very words of Daniel's story in the text sometimes repeat key words in Joseph's story. I'm not going to take you through all the text to show you that. I'm just I'm just letting you know that, especially as um, people look at the Hebrew and compare it. Here's what Andrew Steinman, uh, a commentator who wrote a, one of the best commentaries on Daniel that's out there, in fact, right now, uh, but he also wrote the commentary, uh, commentary on Genesis. Here's what he says about that. He says, These connections are too numerous and too vital to the stories of both men to be simple coincidence or the result of similar life experiences. Instead, clearly, Daniel modeled the telling of his story on the narrative about Joseph to draw his reader's attention to the similarity between his situation and Joseph's. Daniel is telling his readers that God has not lost control of the world or abandoned his people in Babylon any more than he had in Joseph's day. Just as God was present with Joseph and used him to keep many people alive, Genesis 50, verse 20, so he used Daniel and other captive Judeans to preserve and prosper his people in Babylon. End of quote. So when the Bible itself reuses one of its own narratives to hammer something home, we we should pay attention. World powers are at God's disposal for the good of his people. So let's take a hint from the book of Daniel. Daniel 4, hear what King Nebuchadnezzar himself says about God's sovereignty. Daniel 4, verse 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven after God had severely humbled him. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High 
and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Then down a few verses, verse 37, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So the next time you get all worked up about who's in the governor's mansion, or who's in the White House, or in the congressional seats, or in the Senate, or on the Supreme Court, get your head back in Scripture. Amen. Get your head back in Scripture. These people aren't problems for God. He put them there for good reasons, though they mean evil by it. And of course, we'll, that's a big theme in Joseph's story, too, as we'll see. God is able to humble those who, who walk in pride. And those, maybe who aren't, even if they aren't proud per se, God easily maneuvers the, the mighty and the powerful for his purposes, for his glory and for the good of his people. Now, number two, as we look at hope for Christ's people, that certainly should give us a lot of hope that God is not only sovereign in title, he not only has the title of king, but he has the power to accomplish his sovereignty. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So that should give us comfort. But number two in your outline we also see something else reflected in Joseph's story, the pattern here, as we look at Joseph as a suffering saint. Number two, by God's grace, we share not only Christ's sufferings, but also his glory. Yes, sufferings are in store for every child of God in this world. That is part of the plan, but it's not the whole plan. We share not only Christ's sufferings, but also his glory. Not only does Joseph's glory picture Christ's glory, not only was Jesus rescued from his sufferings and raised from the grave to reign at God's right hand, Joseph's deliverance to glory pictures what God has promised to all of us who walk by faith in Christ and walk down that dark road of the cross of suffering. God exalted Joseph once his trials were complete. And so he will do for us in the life to come, once this life of tribulation is complete. So I cannot promise you that in this life, at some point, God will exalt you where you are free of earthly cares, where you're in charge of everything. I cannot promise you that. There may be an unusual situation where it happens, but that's up to God. What I can promise you is the life to come, if you're in Christ. And that's, that's the real payday anyway, isn't it? James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. God has promised this to all his people. They are the ones who love him. 
that they will make it through the trial. So the encouragement is, so put this, put this to work in your perseverance, because it's God preserving you. But blessed is the man who does this, who sticks it out to the end in this life, who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. <clears throat> the picture is being crowned with eternal life. Think, think of the picture from the Pilgrim's Progress. You have to walk the road to get to the celestial city. And that road will involve passing tests, enduring trials. But the end of the road is where you're crowned with eternal life in its fullest sense. <laughs> Joseph was exalted because Pharaoh recognized that the Spirit of God was in Joseph. But is that so different from us? Have we who believe in Christ, have we not received the Spirit of God by faith? Galatians 3, verse 2. So what then will be the end of our story? If we're marked by the same Spirit that marked Joseph, there's going to be a similar outcome, too. Turn to Romans 8 with me. Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 9. Paul writes to believers in Rome. He's already contrasted them with those who are merely in the flesh, who are merely in their old nature, apart from Christ's grace, just the way they were born. Uh, he talked about how those in the flesh, um, you know, they, they can't appreciate the things of God. They're at war with God. Uh, etc., etc., but Romans 8, verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in context. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The Holy Spirit is given from God the Father and from Christ the Son to indwell believers. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, does not belong to Christ, it says. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jump down to verse 14. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So, you didn't receive the spirit of God in conversion just to make you uh, a, um, a cringing slave. You're a son of God. That is what having God's spirit says about you. You're a son, not just a cringing slave. It's by the spirit who is the spirit of adoption, that we, we call on God intimately as Abba, Father. Verse 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
What does it mean that we have the Spirit of God? It means we're fellow heirs with Christ. There is not a drop of glory that Christ inherits, which he will not share with his brethren, his people, his bride, with us. He doesn't get anything that we don't get with him. Think about that. That's our inheritance. Yes, the plan before we come into our full inheritance is suffering for a good reason. To conform us to the image of Christ who's already been through that path before us. So that we may be more fit to inherit. (laughs) But the end is glory. Just like with Joseph. Colossians 1.27 To his saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit within you is Christ in you, and that is our, our hope, our sure guarantee of glory, it says. Because whatever Christ has earned is yours by grace. We've already wondered at the fact that Joseph's glory after suffering is a mere hint of Christ's greater glory after greater suffering. That was this morning. But again, louder for those in the back, as it were, to belong to Christ is to share his glory. To be his fellow heir. 2 Timothy 2, verses 10 through beginning of verse 12. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect those God has chosen to salvation, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Christ came to rescue his people like Joseph was rescued from the pit, you could say. Christ came not just to release us from captivity and prison and let us go our way. He came to wash us and change our clothes so we could share his eternal joy. Turn to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. I love this beautiful portion of scripture which reveals God's heart for his people and Christ's heart for his people. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. The Messiah says, and this is, of course, is the very text Jesus read in the synagogue in his hometown one day. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Messiah says, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. And look at the result if you jump down to verse 10. Where... God's people are are now personified as someone rejoicing. Listen to the words of, of the one who has been rescued so by the Messiah. Verse 10. 
I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So when I see in the text, Pharaoh, not not only making sure that Joseph is, is washed and groomed, but he's giving him new clothes, fine linen. As we see the church given in Revelation, by the way, the fine linen, white and clean. As I see the gold placed about his neck, given the signet ring of Pharaoh, I think it's a good picture, at least, what Christ, what God does for us in Christ. And what he will do in the end, in the end analysis. Go to the next chapter, Isaiah 62, and verses 2 through 3. Addressing the redeemed Zion as this people that the Messiah has released from captivity and from prison. Isaiah 62, 2. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. What a beautiful picture. And that, particularly, Isaiah 62, at least the end result of what's being talked about in chapter 62, we will fully see when we are glorified, of course. But again, we have a race to run. We have a war to fight. We have trials to endure before we enter into the full enjoyment of that inheritance. Jesus says to the churches in Revelation 2.26, the one who conquers or who overcomes and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Revelation 3.8-13, I know your works, speaking to the church at Philadelphia. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have, not, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance... I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And likewise, Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So yes, Joseph points to Christ, but we get everything Christ gets in the end. Now, <clears throat> remember what we cautioned about at the beginning of this section this afternoon. Some immature Christians look for a crown and a throne in this life, don't they? 
Like the Corinthians, they get arrogant and try to build personal followings and put on airs. And the Corinthians didn't even, they did it without social media. They still got it done, amazingly. But what more do we see in our day with all our tools of pride? But such fleshly Christians, they can have foolishly triumphant expectations in this life. And Paul chided that behavior actually with sarcasm. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8. He's talking to the Corinthians because of how they've been acting. He says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. You know the secret of being wise in Christ so you don't have to deal with all these troubles, Corinthians. <laughs> we are weak, but you are strong. We are, uh, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And then Paul changes his tone slightly and he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. He's telling them, look, you've got your head in the clouds. You think this is all about making a name for yourself. And I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas. I'm part of the right crowd. And we have these wonderful gifts to show off uh, that God has given us. And we're already kings. (laughs) Paul says that's not what the Christian life's about. We haven't reached our rewards yet. No, you need to be humble in this life. You need to accept lowly conditions, even suffering, because you know your reward isn't here. And yet, though we must avoid foolish expectations and arrogance in this life, we must avoid those things for the right reasons. See, these kinds of false expectations, are they're just too low. They set the bar too low. These these kinds of glories are too frivolous. Sort of glory that we seek in this life sometimes. Or as some want to say, we need to take over the world for Christ. (laughs) Politically or something. Those things are unworthy of our calling. When our spirits join the ranks of the church triumphant in the heavenly Zion. And on the day of resurrection, when we we meet the Lord in the air, in his returning glory, that's when we will have unfading glory. That's the blessed hope realized, the hope we'll have realized then that's greater than all other hopes could be. That'll be faith made sight. And so in light of those great and precious promises, and in light of God's hand that's right now working all things together 
for our eternal good. It's also true that we have everything in Christ, even though we don't yet experience that day to day. The same apostle who wrote that scathing rebuke of the Corinthians as his children, he also wrote this earlier in the same letter, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 through 22. He said, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. What's his point? You're playing around with trivial things, seeking glory and assurances about the present life, seeking earthly glory and importance. Everything already belongs to you. You know the end of the story. You inherit all things. The meek shall inherit the earth. So be meek. Stop this. So we should look at Joseph's story and be encouraged that God is in control of all things, even the rich and powerful, even the mighty. And that, yes, the big picture of our story is glory after suffering. But see it the right way. Don't jump the gun and say, well, therefore, I expect if I have the right kind of faith, God will give me what I want tomorrow. (laughs) No, that's not the message. The message is, this is a life of suffering. There'll be better times and worse times. But the Bible calls this the great tribulation. The great time of pressure for God's people in this life. Afterwards, there's heavenly glory. There's eternal glory. There's solid joys and lasting treasures. That's what you should have your eye on. Not the glories of Egypt in the sense of earthly things. God still gives us plenty of good things to enjoy in this life. Let's not discredit that. But this isn't payday. So let's run the race looking to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for your amazing grace that saved wretches like us, and that grace which has brought us safe thus far will lead us home. We thank you that as... The hymn says, the Lord has promised good to me, his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And yet, when the earth and the heavens are no more, you will still be forever ours, Lord. Lord, help us to seek the things above where Christ is, seated at your right hand, and set our eyes Not on the things on this earth, but the things above. We know when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will appear with him in glory. Help us to set our sights high enough. And to endure through good times and bad in this life, knowing that no eye has seen, 
no ear has heard and it hasn't even entered the heart of man, his imagination, what you have prepared for those who love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.